That brings us to chapter 8. In chapter 8, God is going to pick Ezekiel up in a wind, and he's going to fly him down to Jerusalem. Now, did he physically go down, or is this an out-of-body experience vision? Most likely the latter, but don't know. It could be that Ezekiel was flying over the city and God made him invisible and nobody saw him, but that's usually not how God works. Usually it's more with visions. So he's going to fly him down to Jerusalem and he's going to get a virtual tour of the temple. So before we add virtual reality. And he's going to show him all the horrible, messed up things that are happening in the temple. And then he's going to show him the glory of God in the temple. Chapter 8, verse 1. And the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth of the month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting in front of me, the hand of the sovereign Yahweh seized me, and as I watched, I noticed a form that appeared to be a man. This is Yahweh. From his waist downward was something like fire, and from his waist upward was something like brightness, like a glowing amber. He stretched out his form. He stretched out, sorry. He stretched out the form of a hand and grabbed me by the lock of my hair on my head. Then a wind lifted me up between the earth and the sky and brought me before Jerusalem by means of a divine visions to the door of the inner gate, which faces north, where the statue which provokes the jealousy was located. Then I perceived the glory of God of Israel was there as in the vision I had seen earlier in the valley. Now, this seems a little like, wow, God, you kind of like grab him by the hair and just whip him through the wind for Jerusalem. But that's the idea. He's being led by his hair to Jerusalem. And he gets there and he's hovering over the temple and he sees the glory of God in the temple. He said to me, verse 5, son of man, look up toward the north. So I looked up toward the north and I noticed to the north of the altar gate was the statue of jealousy at the entrance. Now, the statue of jealousy is an idol that Israel had built in the temple. Most likely, this is Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah was a godly man. He was the first man that tore down all the high places of all the kings of Judah and Israel. He got rid of all the high places. He destroyed all the idols in the land and everything. And he led Israel in a revival. And he is the one that protected them. Well, his faith allowed them to escape the judgment of the Assyrians. But his lack of faith at the end of his life incurred the wrath of the Babylonian judgment. When he died, his son Manasseh took over. And Manasseh became king when he was 15 years old. And he was more evil than anybody before him. And of all, he's actually lifted up to the, beyond the evilness of Ahab. And he did something that no one's ever did. done. He built idols to, Yah, to the pagan gods in the actual temple of Yahweh. And he promoted temple prostitution in the temple of Yahweh. This lasted. Now his son after him, Ahaz, um, was evil and wicked too. When Josiah brought reforms, he got rid of that stuff. But when he died, it all came back. The kings brought. Once it's there, it's kind of like prohibition. Once you've had alcohol, you can't really take it away. You just got to deal with it. And once the idols were there and people realized, oh, we can do this, you can bring prohibition and take it away. But once Josiah dies, it all comes back again. And so that's what he's seeing. He's seeing all this idolatry and all this wickedness in the temple. And God is going to show him this. So he sees the statue of jealousy. That's not what they called it, but that's what God is calling it. 
Verse 6, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations. Now, abominations is a word that basically means a thing that should not happen. A thing that is completely unholy and unnatural and should never exist or ever happen or ever be done. That the people of Israel are practicing here to drive me away from the sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations than these. So God says they're intentionally doing this to drive me away. Now, most likely that's not true. That they're saying, hey, we're intentionally going to try to drive Yahweh away. What most likely is that God's told them that he doesn't like this and they're not stopping which means they don't care that it bothers him. He brought me to the entrance of the court, and as I watched, I noticed a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and uncovered a doorway. He said to me, Go in and see the evil abominations they are practicing here. Now the idea of crawling through a hole into the temple means that they think they're doing this in secret, like God doesn't see it and doesn't know it. But God does. Go in and see the evil abominations they are practicing here. So I went in and I looked, and I noticed every figure of creeping thing and beast, detestable images, and every idol of the house of Israel engraved on the wall and all around. Now remember, in the Ten Commandments, God said, You shall have no graven images of anything above in the sky, on the earth, or in the sea below, no animals, no creeping, crawling things. That's his word for insects and that kind of stuff. It's all, he uses the same language of how he created the world in Genesis 1. And he says, you have none of these images and follow them and worship them. And so Ezekiel sees these images of all, even insects. They have turned insects into gods. And that's what the Egyptians did. And not only are they worshiping them, but they've carved them into the walls of Yahweh's house. Not only did God say no graven images, but they've come in and like graffitied his house with these images. And they've totally violated him. Seventy men from the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazanai, son of Saphonis, standing among them. These were priests. Were standing in front of them, each with a censer in his hand. That's a, um, a metal circular container with incense in it that billows out smoke. And fragrant vapors from a cloud of incense were swirling upward. He said to me, Do you see, son of man, what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in the chamber of his idolatrous, of his idolatrous images? For they think that Yahweh does not see us. Yahweh has abandoned the land. He, does, he said to me, You will see them practicing even greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the Yahweh's house, and I noticed women sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? You will see even greater abominations than these. Now, Tammuz was a god of the dead in the, in the pagan culture, and you, you worshipped him through really weird rituals and rites that involved cutting yourself, a lot of really dark things. But he was a god of the underworld, a god of the dead. And his rituals and his festivals are very dark, very um, sadomasochist, very weird. And he, for whatever reason, attracted lots of females to his devotion. And so they brought this into the temple of God. And what God is saying, you'll see greater abominations than this. And he takes them that. Now remember, God is the living God. He is the almighty living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he is a God of life and resurrection and blessings. And, and so not only are they worshiping another God, which is sick and twisted and unfaithful to God, but they've brought a God of death 
into God's house. And they've chosen to worship death over life, which was what a lot of Americans do. This is a huge epidemic in America, even worshiping death and suicide and cutting and all that kind of stuff. But they're doing it in God's house. And not only that, they're doing these really dark rituals in God's house. And so if you imagine like God living in a house and people coming in and graffitiing profane images and sick and twisted things on this wall and then then doing these things in his house and that kind of stuff, and and not that he's on vacation, but you come back from vacation, he sees us all this, how horrifying that would be. And that's just a physical house. This is the presence of God. This temple represents his presence and they don't care. Verse 16, he brought me to the inner court of Yahweh's house, right there at the entrance to Yahweh's temple between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to Yahweh's temple facing east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now, this is highly symbolic because they're worshiping the sun, and they're worshiping the sun with an Egyptian image and all that kind of stuff, and it's an idol, it's a source of life. But what's so significant of this is remember, when you go eastward, you're walking away from God. So you're either rebelling against God and moving away from him, or he is judging you and casting you out of his presence. But the fact that they've chose to face the east symbolically represents them walking away from God. And the fact that he emphasizes that their back is to the temple is symbolically. Now, they're probably not thinking that as they're doing it, but what God is emphasizing is that's what's going on. That's the way he's seeing it is ironic or not ironic, but is fitting. The image is fitting of what they're doing. Verse 17, he said to me, Do you see, son of man? It is a trivial thing that the house of Judah commits these abominations. They are practicing here. Now, what he means by this is they have no guilt. They have no shame. It never occurs to them this is wrong. They don't ever feel bad, ever. And this is how evil they are. Remember, he's not talking about people who mess up. He's not talking about people who just commit sins. He's not talking about flawed people. He's not even talking about people who are stuck in addictions like alcoholism or sex addictions or gambling and they don't want to be that way and they want to stop and they can't because they're... he's talking about people who don't care. They have no guilt. They have no shame. And it never occurs to them to even think that what they're doing is wrong. That is the image of God being erased. That's the image of God being erased. Very few of us have met people that far gone or met very few people that are that far gone. For they have filled the land with violence and provoked me to anger still further. Look, they are putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act with fury. My eye will not pity them, nor will I spare them. When they have shouted in my, when they have shouted in my ears, I will not listen to them. We have no idea what putting the branch to your nose means. What we do know is it's really bad. Because he shows them this and says, I'll show you worse things. And he shows them that. And he says, I'll show you worse things. And he shows them that. And then he says, look, they're even. Then it's got to be bad, really bad. Now, don't think like bad like drugs and alcohol bad. Maybe it's not that. But what it symbolically represents, like the, 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 the words, the imagery that they're feeling in their heart, it may be probably more like that kind of a thing. There may be nothing wrong with putting it. There's nothing wrong with putting a stick to your nose, by the way. It probably it has some kind of symbolic meaning, like flicking somebody off, like something really bad that that communicates, or a connection to an idol. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then he shouted in my ears, <clears throat> Approach, 
you who are to visit the destruction on the city, each with his destructive weapon in his hand. Next, I notice six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his war club in his hand. Among them was a man dressed in linen and a writing kit at his side. <clears throat> he came and stood beside the bronze altar. These are angelic beings. These are sons of God. And he sees these sons of God. Now God just yells, Behold, come, you are the destruction of the temple. And Ezekiel looks up in the air and he sees these sons of God coming from the north gate. And they have war clubs ready to just destroy the temple. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is going to literally do in the earthly material realm by destroying the temple is going to be the mirror of what God's sons of God angelic beings are going to do in the metaphysical supernatural realm. And and I don't know exactly how this works, but what happens in the material realm does affect the spiritual. And what happens in the spiritual does affect the material. And there is a certain sense of a mirroring that happens. They're not exactly 100% true. I'm not trying to say that. I've never been there and I don't know it fully. But there is some kind of a correlation, a cause and effect event that has clearly been portrayed throughout the Bible. And you're really going to see when you get to the book of Revelation. And so God is sending these angelic beings, these sons of gods, to begin to basically destroy the temple. And there's also a man with a writing kit. And God recording things is very serious to him. Keeping a record is very serious to him. You know that they're dressed in linen because the only time you ever see linen is with the priests when God tells them to wear the linen robe and then with the angelic beings. But he never really talks about the priests wearing linen robes that much throughout Israel because the priests never actually were righteous. But when he talks about the angelic beings, he does talk about them wearing linen robes because they are righteous. Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub where it had been rested the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man dressed in linen who had the writing kit at his side. And Yahweh said to him, Go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the people who moan and groan over all the abominations practiced in it. He is to put a mark on the foreheads. All the people are righteous. All the people are in their homes. And they're crying out to God, like, save us, God. Help this city. Pray for my government. Pray for the people. Like, and they see this wickedness, and it breaks their heart. And they, they can't stand the evil in the cities. Those people are still righteous. They're to put a mark on their forehead. Now, this is not a literal mark. They're not going to go around wearing this mark on their forehead for people to see. Remember, this is all visions. This is all symbolic. But the mark is connected to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. When God says, Hear, O Israel, your Lord your God is one, and you shall know of God's before me. You shall bind this to your arms, meaning that it should be a part of your works and deeds. And you shall bind this to your foreheads, meaning that it should be a part of your thinking. And you shall bind this to your doorways, meaning it should be a part of the home, the metaphorical home, not the literal house that you've created, the environment. And the idea, and then he goes on and says, and you shall teach these things to your children when you wake up, when you lie down, when you eat, when you walk along the road. And so basically he's saying the word of God and Yahweh being your only devoted master should be a part of your deeds, a part of your thinking, a part of your household, your environment, and it should be on your mouth with your family all the time. That became symbolic. Remember, he says this becomes symbolic when he uses that marking the forehead. 
The forehead is the thinking. And so remember when we get to the second testament, the forehead is the most important thing because that's your volition. And the first testament is your heart. But by the time the Greeks come along, they're going to no longer think of the heart as your will. They're going to think of the brain, the mind as your will. And this is why when we get to the New Testament, it does not say the transforming and the renewing of the heart. This is the transforming and the renewing of your mind. It does not say the, the breastplate of salvation. It says the helmet of salvation. And it, does, it says take every thought captive, not every feeling captive. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't take feelings captive, but feelings are an outgrowth of what's happening here. The mind is where our desire is. The mind is where our will is, our choices, our decision-making. And they've made a choice to stay righteous to God. So God is marking their volition, their choice. The Garden of Eden, you have a choice. And he's marking that and saying they're protected. They've made a choice to stay committed to me. I will make a choice to protect them under the covenant and mark them. And so that's the idea that's being communicated here. Do not see this as literal marks in the forehead, but more of connected to the renewing of the mind, the binding it to your forehead, the whole Deuteronomy, the great Shema, the great hearing. And that great Shema means hearing, and that word Shema means hear and respond. God is not just saying, hear this Israel, Shema this Israel, the Lord your God is one. He means hear and respond. There's a different word for just hearing, going in one ear and going out the other. The word Shema means hear and obey, hear and respond. And so what God is saying is they have, and so I will answer them through the Deuteronomic covenant and protect them. They are marked. Why listen, he said to the others, go through the city. After um, There's a tradition in Judaism that the, the mark that is being marked on their foreheads is the, the, the towel. And the towel is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's our equivalent of a T in English. But it's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, meaning this is the end. This is the judgment that's coming. This mark is going to be paralleled in the book of Revelation. It's going to be paralleled in the book of Revelation. When we get to the book of Revelation, you're going to see how important it was to know the prophets first. So many people have misinterpreted Revelation only because they have not really studied the prophets. Verse 5. While listen, he said to the others, go through the city after him and strike people down. Do not let your eye pity nor spare anyone. Old men, young men, young women, little children, women, wipe them all out. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they begin with the elders who are at the front of the temple. This takes you right back to the Levites executing those who worship the golden calf. And what God is making clear is this is that all over again. Verse 7, he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courtyards with corpses. Now this is important. This is huge. God has made it very clear that his sanctuary is never to be defiled. The priests were to dedicate their entire life to doing ridiculously complicated and extensive time-consuming rituals on a daily basis to keep the tabernacle cleansed and pure and all this kind of stuff. And God is saying very specifically, I am commanding my angelic beings to intentionally defile the temple. And with dead bodies means that it cannot be purified. It cannot be purified. When you burn dead bodies in it and then you burn them, they become uncleansable, so to speak. Not that God can't cleanse it, 
but in a symbolic metaphorical sense, this place is ruined. And so God is defiling and ruining his own temple because they did it first with sin. And that's huge when you say this, you have messed up and defiled my house so badly, it is better for me to burn it to the ground than to try to fix everything you did in it. And then even if I scrubbed your graffiti off and got your idols out of the picture, the memory of what you've done here, the spiritual filth that you've left behind, there, when evil has been pre- performed and practiced for a long period of time in one location, and even if that evil moves out, there is in this spiritual realm kind of a sense of lingeringness um, that, that is still there. And he's saying this has to be burned. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar is coming to burn it because of their sin. They have ruined his house to the point that he has to burn it to the ground in order to cleanse it. So they begin with the elders. Verse 7, he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courtyards with corpses. Go. They went out and they struck people down through the city. While they were striking them down, I was left alone. And I threw myself face down and cried out, oh, sovereign Yahweh, will you destroy the entire remnant of Israel when you pour out your fury on Jerusalem? He said to me, the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is extremely great. And the land is full of murder and the city is full of corruption. For they say, Yahweh has abandoned the land, and Yahweh does not see. But as for me, my eye will not pity them, nor will I spare them. I hereby repay them for what they have done. Now remember, they did this first. They brought the judgment on them. God made it very clear in the Deuteronomy. This is what would happen if you disobeyed. God gave them many warnings as he destroyed the Canaanites and Sodom and Gomorrah around them. And God made it very clear with prophet after prophet after prophet that warned them for over 700 years that this has come. And God gave them many revivals. These are not a people who are blindsided by this judgment. This is not an abusive father that just loses his temper and flies off the handle and you didn't see that coming. This is a father that is giving them what they deserve after much effort to bring them back. Verse 11, next I noticed the man dressed in linen with a writing kit at his side, bringing back the word, I have done just as you've commanded me. 